The first book of Samuel, chapter 3, reading verses 1 to 10. Samuel's calling and prophetic activity. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visitors were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had began to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up, and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, your servant is listening. John chapter 1, reading verses 43 to 51. Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, he said of him, He is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you come to know, know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Thanks be to God for his word. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's the lectionary passage for today. It's part of Epiphany. It's part of the recognition of Jesus, but it was also a kind of feeling. It's the question that's dominating our headlines and our politics at the moment. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? At least a variant on it. One of the most powerful men in the world is asking, probably in something of the same tone of voice, albeit with rather cruder language, can anything good come out of Africa, of El Salvador, of Haiti? And quite rightly, there has been widespread condemnation of the question and of the assumptions behind it. The assumption that everybody in one community is the same, but even more, the assumption that the people of any community, any country, any town can be condemned or even understood and judgments made on the basis of where they come from. Of course, the question is asked in all sorts of ways. The categories involved can be all sorts of shapes and sizes. Can anything good come from the left, come from the right, from pro-Brexiteers, from anti-Brexiteers, from Europe, from those in favour of withdrawal? It's the shape of the question that has come to dominate so much of our public discourse. The assumption that one point of disagreement, valid disagreement over a political position, means that the whole of somebody or some party's convictions and arguments can be dismissed. Not through argument or engaged debate, but by sweeping condemnation. Well, they're such and such, and we don't need to listen to them. We can dismiss them even more. We can be rude about them. We can dehumanize them. We don't need to pay attention. They are not really people. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? As believers, we're not immune to it. Can anything good come from a fundamentalist position? Can anything worthwhile come from those who disagree with us about matters of sexuality, choice of hymns, ways of reading scripture? It's a powerful and very lazy form of argument. This person fits that category and therefore does not need to be taken seriously. Can anything good come from the people we disagree with, people we don't trust, people we have no contact with, people we've been taught to avoid, people we've chosen to withdraw from? It goes even wider. I read a comment yesterday from somebody who said he was no longer going to read anything, a novel, written by people under 45 because he'd realized how much he had changed between the ages of 20 and 50, and so he thought that people who were in their 20s and their 30s were too young and too ill-informed to say anything worthwhile. Can anything good come from the mouths of the young, from newness and novelty, from different ways of doing things, of thinking about things, of understanding things? Which brings us to Samuel. Samuel the boy, which means he was anything from eight to 18. But what we know is he's the child given to a barren woman and the one who, when the word of the Lord is rare and visions are not widespread, is serving in the temple. 
Barrenness is one of the ways in which the writers of the story of God with people often use to speak about endings, about death, about the threat of dissolution. At various points in Israel's story, when the nation is coming to an end, through war or through loss of faith and identity, through danger, through diminution, the symbol of the loss of all hope and possibility is that so-and-so, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mother, Hannah, even Elizabeth, as we reflected in the Advent times, that they do not have children. And it's a sign, it's, it's, a, it's a symbol in the story of the end that is coming. There is no hope. And then a child is born, unexpectedly. And it's the story that tells the bigger story, that when all is lost and dying, when the end is inevitable, when God is silent and hidden, a child is born, a new life becomes possible, something changes, and there's a new story to tell. Can anything good come out of the mouth, the ideas, the idea of the actions of the young people? And there in the story of Samuel, we're told this is how God acts. This is where new life comes from. This is absolutely not to be dismissed, but to be welcomed and embraced. For here is God changing the world. Here is the fulfillment of the promise. Here is the life that is our hope. So therefore, can anything good come from the past? from tradition and the life that's dying and fading away. And we cannot read the story of Samuel without reading the story of Eli, the old man whose eyes are dim, whose sons, the previous chapter says, his sons are scoundrels. He has tried to train them in the old ways, but they are abusing the system and stealing from the people. And the old man under whose care and charge the nation has lost touch with its faith and its identity. This old man who symbolizes and embodies the threatened dissolution. This old man who is the end of hope. This old man whose wisdom and insight and training in the tradition and stories of his people means that he can offer Samuel the tools and the wisdom that Samuel needs to be in the right place and doing the right thing to meet God and hear the call. Can anything good come from the past, from the dying tradition and the dead end? Well, without the past and without the teaching and the wisdom, the this is how we got here and here's what we've learnt on the way and our experience of God is thus and thus. Without that voice, the present experience becomes free-floating and anxious and unrooted and unsustainable. Eli and Israel need Samuel with his promise and his new beginning. And Samuel and Israel need Eli with his rootedness and his tradition and his learning and his experience. Can anything good come from the ones, the people, the category, the position that we are not? Well, of course it can. The life lesson from today's readings is pretty obvious, and pretty much there to be grasped. We cannot judge on the basis of the category. We do but it's not going to work. And reflecting on that as a life lesson does raise the question of why, when it's so obvious that it's a daft thing to do, why do people do it? What is going on when that kind of assertion seems possible? What is in Nathaniel's mind when he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And obviously we can't know, except that clearly this is folk wisdom and received opinion. He's not dreaming it up from nowhere. Nazareth is a tiny little town. 
that had a bad reputation. But we can't know what Nathaniel was thinking and we can't know what was in the mind of the President of the United States when he said or didn't say whatever it was he said or didn't say that seems to betray the same kind of assumption, albeit a different location. But what about our own assumptions about age, about gender? about political or theological position, about sexuality, or about our taste in ties. Whatever it is that we use to say, me and mine good, then bad and to be dismissed. And this need to categorize, this need to shut out other voices can arise from various mechanisms, but one of the most profound roots of it is, is issues of identity. It starts with our earliest need to differentiate ourselves from every, every other person. I am me, I am not you. I am me, I am not my mother. I may need to compete with others for the attention of my prime caregiver, and so the other becomes bad as my competitor and needs to be shut out. But it's much more complex than that. Then we need never dismiss the impact of such early formative experiences. I am me in a world that appears not to have enough, enough food, enough time, enough love, enough power to go around. So I need to make sure I have all I need. And I do that by making sure that those who are not me don't take it away from me. But I can't survive alone. I need others to feed me and protect me. And so it's not just that I must survive at the cost of other people, but I and those on whom I depend must survive and others need not. And so we get the kind of tribalism and boundary setting that this comment and all its cognates witness to. The ones who are not me and mine do not need to be considered, can be kept out, and even more powerfully can be blamed, as that will shift the blame for anything bad, the threat, the shortage, the danger, shift it onto the outsider, away from me and the people I depend on. Can anything good come from Nazareth is the shorthand for all this deep and life-shaping stuff. How do we regard those who are not us, whose way of life challenges us, whose attitudes shock and confuse us, whose language is unknown to us, whose history is counter to ours? Do we derive our identity and our security from these kind of boundaries, however we define them? ethnicity or age or skin color or political persuasion. Because the life lesson from these stories is surely that that is unsustainable and it limits. Nathaniel and Samuel and Eli all discover something so much bigger and generous and full of possibility when instead of turning away, they turn towards the other and trust themselves to encounter and to discovery. And that's the life lesson. But there's also a much more significant God word within this. For the rejection of the other has many of its roots deep in the need to create and sustain and protect an identity. I know and can protect and sustain who I am by not being you. But look at what's given as the word from God in these stories. It's the name, it's the identity of the person concerned. Samuel is called by his name in the night. Nathaniel is met with recognition and description and promise. The word of God in the face of rejection and categorization comes as the creation and sustaining of an identity that isn't mirroring our process. It comes instead as gift, 
Here is your name, here is who you are, and it brings freedom and redemption. Being self-sufficient and self-exhausting is exhausting and harmful and ultimately self-defeating. If our identity is first created and then sustained by shutting out the other and avoiding all openness and transformation, rejecting the gift and the challenge that can come from true encounter, eventually the self we create will become so fragile and so in need of constant defense that all our energy and all our self will go into that protection. Now, I'm not going to indulge in analysis of the president of the USA. That would be presumptuous in the extreme, and I won't indulge in such analysis of anyone else either. But I will suggest that when we see people who are so afraid of the other, so determined to shut out all voices but their own, when we see it in ourselves, when we catch ourselves treating others with contempt or dismissing them simply because they are whoever it is they are, or find our anger or our distrust of them is so great that we cannot countenance the possibility there might be something to be gained from encounter. Well, then we have become so concerned with sustaining our self-created identity that that very identity is eating us alive. And Jesus talks about this. He tells the people who want to follow him that that will involve their death. If any will follow me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And there are layers and layers and depths of meaning in this call. But part of it involves the willingness, the possibility that the self that we create and defend must die. So that our true self, the self that is named by God, that is called into being by God's call to us, can live. Jesus goes on. Anyone who wants to preserve their life will lose it. But the one who loses their life for me and for the gospel will find it. The more energy and commitment we put into protecting who we are and keeping apart from, keeping uncontaminated by those who are not us, the less we will be alive. But as we trust, as we dare to trust ourselves our deepest selves to the words spoken by God, then the more life and living we are open to. God called Samuel in the night, not to an easy task. If we read on, what Samuel is called to do is tell Eli that his line is ending. The call of God is not easy, but it was the beginning of a new life for the nation and indeed, through Samuel's ministry, King David is anointed and the promises begin to take shape and we hear the next word of the story that's fulfilled in Jesus' coming, the one who fulfills all the promise. And in Jesus' call to Nathanael, there's a model for all our calls and all the namings that are our hope and our possibility. Nathanael is dismissive and self-protected. Can anything good come from Nazareth? But he's not judged or excluded because of that. Rather, he's seen in his potential and he's named for his possibility. Jesus calls him a man of integrity and promises him that he will be witness to many presences of God. As he's leaving them and promising to spend, send the Spirit, Jesus tells his friends they are going to be his witnesses. And we've tended to translate this as the ones who will bear witness, who will talk about what has happened, and that matters. That's where we... We translate it as the one who says, this is that, this is what God is doing. This is what, how we might share. And that's a role we should not take lightly, but primarily a witness is the one who sees what is happening. 
And the witnesses in these stories are Eli and Philip. They're the ones already secure enough in their identity in God, in their naming and their calling, in their selves dependent on God, that they can see what God's doing and point to it and join in and be witnesses and agents of God's activity. Eli can say, this is what you need to do, even when it is shutting him out. Philip can say to Nathaniel, come and see. He doesn't need to fight him when Nathaniel is rude. Here is the God word in the story. If the life lesson is don't make quick or even lasting judgments on the basis of categorization, then that's a useful thing to learn and it's, it will contribute to the well-being of the world. And it's challenging and it asks a lot of us because it all asks us always to act from our best selves and never to fail and never to let down our guard on our own need and our own sin. And that's fine. Living the best we can, knowing what is the highest good and striving to reach it is admirable and important. But we know we fail. We know we are broken and that we break or at the very least we lash out and hurt others. And we can account for it and to some extent, if not exactly justify it, at least de-guilt it. Some of the ways we act, some of the times we hurt each other because of things that have happened to us. But we know that's not enough. We are not enough. Our very best is not enough. Or rather, it is too much because it asks too much of us. And so we need not only the life lesson, but also the God word, the naming and the calling that will take us into our new God-given selves, our deepest recreated identity, rooted not in our own need, nor even in our own good intentions, but in the gift and the call of God who knows us through and through and names us as our best selves and as who we will be in fulfillment. And even more than that, names us as beloved, without any shadow. And if that is our name, the beloved one of God, then our calling is to witness it, to see it in ourselves as true, to know ourselves, to see the truth of ourselves as the ones who are utterly, deeply, and completely loved. And then to see it of other people as well. Eli saw Samuel named and called and helped him to understand it. And Philip saw that Nathanael could hear and simply pointed him in the direction of the word of God, the naming and the call of God that was going to, to change him. They didn't need to, but they could. They didn't need to defend or protect themselves. And so they had the freedom to trust that these others didn't need to be like them, didn't need to follow their path, but could meet God for themselves. And here is the God word that we are completely loved. And so is everybody else. Utterly. Even the ones who talk dangerous nonsense. And if we dare to trust that, what is the freedom to act and speak that we find? And what is the freedom not to act that we might also discover? Amen. Let us pray. Our God, there are times as we take notice of the world of which we are a part when we are just angry. 
We're angry at what people say. We're so angry at what people do. We hear idiocy spoken and wonder how can people think that? And even more, how can they say it? And we see people hurt and made homeless and with a future taken away and caught in violence because of stupidity and cruelty and blindness and unwillingness to change. And we feel angry and frustrated and despairing and afraid. And we want to blame and we want to make it everybody's fault and we want to shut out those who should do better. And we'd really rather you didn't love them. And you call us by our name. And you set us in this world. And you tell us that we are loved and that that is true of everyone. And so we pray, help us to dare to trust. And we ask you to purify our anger so that it doesn't become blaming and self-righteous, but becomes the energy for change. that we will stand up against injustice and speak out against untruths and be a voice where one is needed. And that you will give us the courage we need to do that. And you'll give us the wisdom and the compassion to know how to live your kingdom in its fullness so that hope comes and lives are transformed. And we ask you, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray for our world, not just for the bits we understand, not just for the bits where we are at home, but for our world, sustained by you and loved absolutely. And when we come to prayer, we feel weak, for we don't know what it is we're doing. But before you now, we remember all those accounts of lives and living that cause us such distress. We remember the pictures of those who are refugees and the stories that we hear of people trafficking and exploitation and rejection and homelessness. We call to mind the accounts we hear of the bombings that go on and on relentlessly in parts of Syria where people are living in cellars and trying to survive. We are aware through stories, through personal accounts, 
of the struggles for Palestinians trying to get to work and get to school and living in the threat of, with the threat of violence and the day-to-day -day disruption of everyday life and the limiting of resources. We look around in our own community and we see those living in the margins, those for whom food banks have become a necessity. Those whose distress of body or mind cannot be treated because the resources have become too limited. Those who find themselves alienated from family and friends and cast adrift. We see all this. And we stand before you and we cry, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And we say, Lord, may we be those who become the answers to others' prayers. And we say, open our eyes so that we can witness the truth of our world and the truth of your presence. And open our hearts and imaginations that we may be the place where those meet and the kingdom comes. As you have named us, so we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.